Welcome to You Talk Podcast, where you talk and we listen and learn. Here are some highlights from this episode. My father just had a meltdown and he was diagnosed as a severe paranoid schizophrenic. And boy, did he change. <laughs> they were terrified of him. I had the whammy in on him, which I never understood that. Well, he and I wrestled for a gun one day. You can't live with that kind of terror in a home without it greatly affecting you. Uh, so I made some, you know, comment, well, you know, beauty's only skin deep. And she just came back so fast with, you hold him and I'll skin him. And then they tested all the kids and we realized that out of the three remaining, only Bradley was healthy. You so wanted to just give in to the abyss of grief and just pull it in and hide under it. But you can't. Today we're going to be talking with Betty. Betty grew up in the 1940s and 1950s. She's going to discuss with us some of the challenges she's faced in her lifetime, and this woman has faced more challenges than any one person deserves to face, let me tell you. Her father was diagnosed with schizophrenia during her teen years and became violent. His personality totally changed. She had to help protect her younger siblings and her mother and also help support the family. When she was 17, she got married. She ended up having a total of nine children, two of whom were adopted, and five of those children ended up having cystic fibrosis, which in those days was almost always a fatal disease. And as if that weren't enough, three of her other children suffered very serious things. And I don't want to spoil it, but let me just say that this woman has experienced so many things in her life and she's done it with humor and grace and strength and positive words. And we have a lot that we can learn from her. The following episodes are taken from several interviews I had with Betty in her home, and some of the time she's quoting from a book she wrote about her life. I've done my best to splice everything together into one cohesive story, and I hope you'll listen to all of it because it really is amazing. Okay, we are here today with Betty, and she is going to share her incredible life with us. Thank you for being here today, Betty. My pleasure, CJ. All right, let's start out. Uh, how about if you tell me a little bit about your early years, like when and where you were born? I was born in Oklahoma at my grandfather's farm. And uh, then I moved to Los Angeles when we were two. And I was raised in the Los Angeles area. What were your parents like? Good question. Um, my dad was a tall, very good-looking gentleman. He looked a little bit like... Uh, Gregory Peck. Wow. Yeah, very, very nice. And my mother was a beautiful woman. And dad was very bright, uh, funny, had an enormous sense of humor, a very kind, gentle man. And so those were mostly the memories I hold of him, which perhaps is why I was the only one in the family not scared of him when he became very ill. Mm. Uh, my mother had just a terrible childhood, bless her heart. But she was one strong female. And I'll just tell you, her humor, she'd come up with these one-liners that just wipe us all out. She was just funnier than heck. She was the authoritarian for the most part. Uh, she did the spanking. Dad very rarely ever laid a hand on us. He, he didn't have to. When he used a certain voice, we, we knew that was it. With Mama, we could push. But uh, once Dad said no, it, it was no. And uh, just very kind, loving people. Mom had a work ethic like I have never seen since. Uh, so honest. Uh, oh, my, the things that she could do. And she was fast and efficient and very good at whatever she undertook. Mm -hmm. 
she always helped people. So we got a great work ethic from her. I think we got my dad's wicked sense of humor. And um, mom was also very service-oriented. If anyone in the neighborhood was ill, she was there. She was always fixing someone's hair, taking pies or cakes to somebody. If someone needed a ride to the doctor or the hospital, she was there. Um, just probably you'd have a hard time finding a bigger heart anywhere. But mom had been injured by her childhood, too. Hmm. In what way was she injured? She was insecure and consequently I think appearances were very important to Mama. Mm. And she had a little bit of a martyr complex, you know, I'm suffering and mm -hmm. <laughs> silence kind of thing, mm -hmm. except it wasn't always so silent. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't a silent martyr. She was uh, a vocal martyr. Yeah, she was a vocal martyr. Well, let's see. Did you have siblings? I did. I have two younger sisters, Kay, next to me in age. She's seven years, one week exactly younger than I am and Phyllis, who's nine years younger than I am. All in all, I had a wonderful childhood up until I was about 12. And when my father just had a meltdown and he was diagnosed as a severe paranoia schizophrenic. Oh and boy, did he change. <laughs> and they were terrified of him. So you can imagine um, they were, what, about five and three or something like that, four and a half and three. So, you know, I mean, he would get out the gun. He would want to tie mom up. Uh, I always stayed home because I, for whatever reason, as my mother called it, I had the whammy in on him, which I never understood that. Mm -hmm. But I never left home because I could keep him calmer and from getting guns or doing anything extreme when I was there and the girls felt safe with me. Mm -hmm. But one time he seemed to be doing better. And so I took a break and I went to stay all night with my girlfriend. My gosh, he had, was chasing him down the street with a car. I mean, it was just crazy. Wait, your, your dad my was dad, just... My mom and my two sisters, because they were going to go to the police. And anyway, it was not good, but he didn't hurt them. And I got back when I heard what was going on and was able to get everything under control. And I never left the house again. I, I worked. I went to school. Well, I didn't work until after he left, but I went to school. And it's funny. I'd say to him when I would leave, Daddy, I'm going to school. You will not act up and hurt anyone while I'm gone. And I want your word. You've always been honest with me that when I get back, everybody's okay. And he would say, okay, Betty. And I would go to school and half of my mind would be at school. The other half is worried sick about what's going might be going on at home. But I came back, everybody would be okay. Well, when you were younger, he was normal? Yes, perfectly normal. And then just out of the blue? It's almost. If there were little signs coming, I didn't see them. But then I was 10, 11 years old. What did your mom think? Did she try to get him to the doctor? No. Again, a lot of it was appearances. Now, number one, there was no money. Number two, mom had no idea what to do or who to go with. Uh, number three, she was crazy about his siblings, and especially his parents. They were extremely close, and she just couldn't imagine putting him away and hurting them like that, so she didn't take any steps to do anything. She just lived with him and tried to endure as best she could, and, you know, I... I protected the kids. They slept in the same room with me, and he'd never come in and bother us. And I was the only one who wasn't afraid of him. After he went back to Oklahoma to be with his siblings, uh, and it was his idea, and mom and dad divorced, um, I would be the one that would fly back to see him and take him out. Of, I finally 
had to go back and have him put away because he could just no longer live on his own. They'd get him on his medication, and he would level right out. But part of the illness is to, at some point, be, you come to believe that they're poisoning you, mm -hmm. that you don't need it, everyone else does. Oh, well, he'd come off his meds. Holy heck, what happened? Because he had remarried, and he oh. had four other kids. They were all terrified. So I'd fly back, get him put away, take care of it, you know, and, and then come home. And so sometimes when I went back, I'd take him out when he was pretty stable and I'd sign him out, and we'd go down and visit all the family and my other siblings and, and have a good visit. And on the way home, it just killed me to put him in there and hear those doors cling behind him. Mm. So I said to him, Dad, would you like to stay out another night? How about we have dinner out and go to the ice cream parlor? He loved ice cream. And we'll stay all night. We'll get a hotel or a motel, and then I'll take you tomorrow. And he said, Bets, that'd be great. And so we did. I got twin beds. He slept in one. I slept in the other. And I wasn't ever afraid he was going to hurt me. But he was probably on medication. Then. But he was on medication then. Mm -hmm. Well, when you were younger, still at home with your sisters, did anything bad ever happen? Well, he and I wrestled for a gun one day. And I don't know where he got the gun. And as I look back, um, he had to let me win. Because he's 6'1", uh -huh. weighed, what, 180 pounds or 90 pounds? There was no way at 5'2 and 110 pounds I was going to get the gun, yeah. right? So because I was the only one that could wrestle with him or could take it. Yeah. So is that the Russian roulette story or am I getting that? Yeah, next? no, that was pretty close. Okay, so yeah. tell me a little more detail about that. Well, it was just a game he liked to play and I'd have to step in and see that that didn't happen. Wow. You know. That must have been an incredibly difficult experience for you and your sisters to go through. Um, yes. I have an excerpt here from my sister's book. Uh, she wrote, started hers before I wrote mine. And uh, it begins with, at first it was little things, like my father coming home from work unhappy because he thought people were watching him all the time, waiting for him to make a mistake. When he could no longer blame it on his job, he began to blame everything on our mother. One moment, he would be watching television or listening to music, and the next, he would be accusing Mom of having an affair with one of Betty's friends. Once he had convinced himself that Mom was having an affair, then he began to wonder if my sisters and I could be his children. He once told Betty that she wasn't his. When he reached a point of believing God had given him the power of life and death, the pain began to subside, and I understood the true meaning of the word fear. As the eldest progressed, my dad seemed to always have a gun close by. He began to threaten Mom and my oldest sister Betty in a way that became a game. Betty is nine years older than I am, so the memories of the emotional and physical abuse that she dealt with during those years are much deeper and stronger than mine could ever be. Kay and I were in school but arrived home before Betty did. When Betty would leave for school, my dad would tell her. When she came home, she would find Mom came and I, who were 19 months older, and I in a pool of blood because he was going to kill us while she was away. She'd look him in the eye and very calmly say, No, Dad, you're not going to hurt anyone, and I'll be home right after school and everything better be fine. I never saw fear in Betty's faith, only strength and determination. Russian roulette was a game my dad enjoyed playing with my mom. If he ever played the game with Betty, I cannot remember, and she would never say. On one occasion, while Mom, Kay, and I were home, I re remember seeing Mom sitting in a chair in the bedroom tied up with my dad's ties and my dad holding a gun to her head. I was curled up in a ball in the corner of the bedroom next to the dresser crying. 
I'm not sure if I was hiding out of fear or hopelessness. Maybe a little of both. I seemed to be the only one who ever showed fear. My mom just sat there and said, shoot her, put her out of her misery, as she seemed to have passed the point of caring. My sister Kay, who could not have been more than six or seven at the time, went into the kitchen and got a butcher knife that looked a foot long to me. She threatened Dad if he did not leave Mom alone. Dad left the house, at which point Kay took the knife and cut the binds, the ties binding Mom. I just stayed in the corner and continued to cry. For my sister Kay, I think the fear turned into anger and gave her courage. She became Mom's protector when Betty wasn't home, which was rare. When looking back, I cannot remember being afraid of Dad when Betty was home. She seemed to have control over him that the rest of us didn't, and I knew I was safe as long as she was there. Betty became my protector most of my life, even in later years when she did not know who or what she was protecting me from. After Dad left, Mom worked very hard to support us. She was working two jobs. Betty was in school and worked part-time. When Mom became ill and wasn't able to work, Betty quit school and went to work as an insurance company to support us. Even though Betty was only 15, she told them she was 22. She looked much older than she was, and life had matured her far beyond her years. She was much as much a mother to us as our mom was. When Kay and I came home from school, one of them was always there. I know Betty wanted to continue her education. She would have graduated at that year when she was 16 and regretted quitting school to go to work, but she just did what she knew needed to be done. She understood questioning it was not going to change anything. Betty could not tell anyone what it was like to be a child because she never had a chance to find out. By the time she was 11, she had a weight on her shoulders that most adults wouldn't have been able to handle. As hard as it must have been for her, she never took it out on K or I. She always loved and protected us. Close quote. Hmm, what an amazing story and an amazing tribute to you, too. She really has a way with words. She writes beautifully. She really does. She doesn't realize how much. So has your relationship with your sisters changed over the years, or do they still look up to you as sort of a protector or mother figure? Um, yes, for many, many, many years, especially Phyllis. When they were young, I treated them as though they were mine. And I would discipline them, you know, get after them, and they didn't like that because you're just the sister. Well, yeah, no, today I'm the mom. Mm. <laughs> you know? But... We've always been exceedingly close, very, very close. And I, I adored them. As I said, I thought they were just beautiful and perfect, and, and you wanted to protect them, and that made us even closer. And then as they all got married and had children of their own, um, it was tough for me, and we've had talks about it, uh, to let go. These, I was still responsible, no matter what happened to them, I was responsible, and so I'm sure I needed a, a larger filter on my mouth at times, and um, I carry a shoehorn because uh, <clears throat> I need it. I'm always putting my foot in my mouth, <laughs> but uh, and it was tough. It was very tough for me to accept the fact that I'm no longer responsible for them, that they have to make their own choices and mistakes, and all I can do is just love them and, and pray about them, you know. But they, they had to be on their own, and turning loose was very hard. It took me a long time, a long time. Well, it seems like everyone in your family could have used some counseling after everything you went through. Um, after 
my sister, I believe after she married, uh, she went into counseling for quite a while. So she has done beautifully. Her her husband has been fabulous. When she would wake up with nightmares or in tears, he would just wake up and hold her and tell her everything was okay. She doesn't do that anymore. And so she's worked through that and is just a dynamite, very bright, very talented, uh, one of the kindest, sweetest people. She took after daddy, I'm sure. Um you know, it just helps everyone, like Mama did, and takes in kids, and <laughs> she's a beautiful, beautiful human being. And my both my sisters and I, we've gotten through that we had to let go, period. And I don't think sisters could be any closer than we are or love each other anymore. And we're a very tight family, right. very tight, you'd as you know. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to be. Yeah. So everyone's doing okay. I don't know how we all got so blessed, actually, to grow up as well as we did, considering everything. Mm -hmm. And I love that you're sharing your story because so many people that are living through hard things can learn from it and find comfort in it and know they're not alone. The thing is, my belief and what where I came to be is I read something that Einstein wrote when I was quite young, and it really helped me during the time with the kids and my dad. Well, a couple of things. One, and, and is this too will pass, which was not Einstein. And then Einstein wrote something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing badly here, there's the level that we live on where the challenges are and where the pain is and where the sorrow is. But there's another level. There's a higher level that we can choose to live on where we can raise ourselves and those that we love above that. Mm. And boy, that became my mission when the kids were ill, is we were all going to live on this higher, sunny, brighter, happier level. Uh, I'd never be able to live with myself if I made it about me. How, how do you live with yourself when they're gone? Mm -hmm. I mean, the day was going to come, they were going to be gone. And if I made it about me, I, I don't know what I would have done afterwards. Mm -hmm. I, I would not have been okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you have a choice. You don't always have a choice about the play you're in, so to speak, or the hands you're dealt. But by George, you always have a choice on what you're going to do with it, how you're going to respond. That's your choice. I'm a person that almost never gets angry, literally about once every 20 years. You can't make me angry. You can't make me sad, and you can't make me happy. We can have fun together, and we can laugh together, and those are great times. But I'm the only one that can create those feelings for me, those emotions. And you can't engage me in anger or anything else unless I choose to engage. And most of the time, I just don't because it isn't that important to me. It isn't worth it. It isn't life and death. And if I keep that eternal look and I don't get caught up and I feel so bad for children that, that in their lives and stuff, they can't see out of that little ball that's right now. Mm -hmm. If they could, they could see sunshine and a happy life for them and wonderful events and love, but they don't see that. And so they end it and, and it just breaks my heart. So the one message I would get out to everyone if I could is be the best you you know how to be. Get up every day and be the best you you know how to be. Be in the moment. Don't look back. Don't plan on forward. You don't know what tomorrow is. Live today. Just be the best you can be today. And on every level and every relationship and whatever it takes, it's going to move you forward and in any positive way for you or those around you. Because when you're, if you need drugs, drugs. 
Drugs are good. No, my son says drugs are bad. Yeah. At any rate, what kind uh, of drugs? We better specify. Yeah, if you, <laughs> I thought we better be very, very specific here. If you need medication for uh, real depression and true anxiety, uh, get it, because when when you're depressed, that is so self-centered. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything is centered on you. It's a very selfish place to be because you see everything through what you're feeling and how you're doing and what you want. That doesn't help anybody, and it certainly doesn't help you. So if you need that medication, do, because when you're down, you don't just hurt you. If you didn't want to take medicine and you live out in the woods by yourself, so be it. But it pulls everyone around you down. I totally agree with that. I, I'm totally pro-medication if you need it, if it's a chronic condition, because you're right, it doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone else around you, your kids, your spouse, your parents, your friends. All right. So what do you remember most about your early childhood? I remember a large loving family. I mean, really, that's the way I remember it. Now, so sadly, my two sisters have very different memories. But remember, for the first 11, 12 years, I had this big, wonderful, gentle, funny man that would carry me around, you know, on his shoulders or whatever. And those are a lot of my memories. Oh, he loved Christmas. Mom did no Christmas decorations. I loved Christmas. Daddy loved Christmas. So we did all the decorations. We did everything. Mama cooked. Mom worked for a hotel at one time, so she knew how to cook and she could bake and make everything. And Christmas, our house was loaded. She loved it. She was in her element, and Dad and I were in our element, you know. My sister was born, Casey, the one next to me, on Christmas Eve. Mama was gone, so I wasn't too happy that Christmas Eve. But when she came home, uh, I think two days later, I wasn't going to see this baby. Well, Mama brought her over and laid her in my arms. I thought that was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my entire life. And to this day, she's outstandingly beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's never changed. And mom let me play with her. I'd take her down the street with me. She was my own personal doll. (laughs) Oh, wait, how old were you? I was seven. Seven. Wow. (laughs) You were a good babysitter, huh? I was a good babysitter. Hmm. Mom said I was so responsible and careful with her. She wasn't worried, you know. So your dad became ill when you were about 11, did you say? About 12. 12, okay. And so how long did your family live with him before he left? Until I was about 15, because at that point, my dad had moved us up in the mountains in Yucaipa, which is up above San Bernardino, up above Redlands, actually, California. And I would ride the bus to school. And, you know, I I almost don't remember that semester I was there. I got decent grades, but I don't remember it. But I'm the one that actually drove dad, license or not, from Yucaipa. My mother was ill. Uh, down to catch a bus in Los Angeles and put him on it, gave him food and money and prayed he'd stay on it until he got to where his siblings were, and he did. And how did your mom handle him leaving? Was she upset? Was she relieved? Well, I think there was a lot of pain. She loved my father very much, but the last four or five years with him had been so difficult and such a strain, and she she wasn't well. And I think there was probably bittersweet, perhaps, but more relief, Yeah, really. And I know it was a blessing on the girls and me. It took a load off of me. Right. It must have affected your family to have him in that kind of condition. It affects everybody. I mean, it's, it's just, you can't live with that kind of terror in a home. 
without it greatly affecting you. And so after he left, I had my cousin and her husband drove from Los Angeles up to Yucaipa and picked up my mom, who wasn't well, and my two sisters. And they took her home with them, and she couldn't work. And I had a friend in Yucaipa, a grown lady that I babysat for, that let me move in with her. And so I lived with, we call her Tiny, was her nickname, and um, went to school days and then worked in a uh, restaurant. Well, actually, it was like a fountain. Soda fountain? Mm, uh, From when I got out of school, I'd go straight there and, and work till 11. 10 or 11, and then I'd go home and do homework and get up and do it all over again. But I'd send mom the money, so I knew she was taken care of. And this was when you were in high school? I was 14, 15. Oh, my. You were a strong young lady. Well, I I guess. At the time, you really don't... You know, I didn't think of that for years and years until people started, as you did, asking me about, how did you do this at this age or this age? I don't know. It was just who I am. It's just what I did. So, of course, it didn't seem strange to me. I would think it would be hard to be separated from your family at that age. Uh, Again, it it wasn't. It was the situation. Yeah, I was relieved my dad was gone. I was being able to kind of support them, which, you know, made me feel very good. I was able to stay in school. I was really happy about that. And so that was not a real bad time for me. So what happened after that? Did you stay there? No, after I finished that semester, I moved back to L.A., and Mom and my sisters and I got a little house. And uh, so she was working, and I was working, and we were able to keep it together. There was a few times where she and I gave our food to the girls, but for the most part, we we were okay. We got through it. Wow. Your mom and dad divorced then, right about that time? they were divorced, yeah. Okay. So then what was high school like for you? Did you have time to have fun with your friends? I think my first year, I had some girlfriends and we hung out together and dad was fairly calm at that point. And um, we had moved to El Monte. So I went to El Monte High School and that was okay. That was fun. So I was home most of the time, but I still had mom work. So I had to carry the load at the house. I had to get home, get dinner, make sure things were clean, you know. And um, take care of my sisters, meet the bus, do that kind of stuff. But I also had friends and we went out and did things. That's good. Do you have any especially happy memories of that time or any fun dances or anything? No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I have, you know, fun memories of things with my friends, but they're just typical kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But no, I didn't go to any of the dances or do any of that. Did your dad continue to help out at all financially or? For as long as he could. But once we left El Monte, he could no longer work. When he moved us up to Yucaipa, it was up to mom and me. Um, Did you date much when you were young? Not much because (laughs) I don't know how it started, but boys and girls, friends, would always come to me for boyfriend-girlfriend advice. At the time, I didn't think anything of it. But now looking back, I don't know how that got started, but it did. And I had a lot of friends, but I had absolutely no desire to date anyone that I knew in school. Was that because of your dad or just you didn't meet anyone you liked? I just thought they were silly and very immature. I mean, when you go through living with things like your, it changes you. Your priorities change. Your uh, perception of things changes. So when I finally did start dating and I've asked my mom a hundred times, how did you allow that? I was, I don't even want to say it. I was 13 and he was 23. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm nicest man. Oh my gosh. He came over one day with his cousin, who was one of my best friends, drove her over. And that's how we met. And I mean, he was 
just a gentleman. He was willing to wait till I was 18 or whatever, and so kind and so good, but I was too young, you know, not going to stay that long and grow up. So obviously it it didn't work out, although we parted as friends. But Mm -hmm. I just seem to have been blessed where a lot of things could have happened that would not have been desirable to just meet the nicest people that were very respectful of my age and new mom. And it was so it was really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what was your first job? (laughs) I was 11. And not too far, at about two miles from the house, there was a theater, and I was an usher with a little flashlight and going <laughs> up and down the aisles. <laughs> that sounds fun. That was my, well, the movie The Thing with Jim Arnest came out, and I am one who hides under the seat, right? But I wanted to see it, so I'd be walking back and forth in the lobby and, and peeking, and then I'd stand inside the door, and then it gets scary, and I'd run back out in the lobby, then I'd just peek when someone opened the door. <laughs> <laughs> I later saw it all the way through. I was going to ask you if you ever saw a it all f- the way a few through. a few years later. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. So, how did you meet your first husband? Oh, Blaine, love of my life. Any rate, um, I went to work for him one summer. The summer I was sixteen, when school was out, uh, I was to graduate. So I went to see him that summer and got the job. And I was supposed to help in the office. There was no one else there, but Harvey, the uh, factory manager, would be in and out. And in about 10 days, the office was mine. I was the only one there. They left me alone, and I just ran everything. Wow. And I remember being a new factory. They hadn't really established themselves in that state yet. So they needed mattress springs and all kinds of things. And Harvey was having a hard time finding it. So I made two or three phone calls, had these truckloads lined up and unloading stuff. And Blaine noticed. He thought that was, it it was something that got his attention. Well, yeah, at 16, huh? Yeah. So he started, uh, when he was gone most of the time, he was out of state. But when he came, instead of taking the streetcar home, he said, do you mind? I'd be happy to give you a ride home and we could have dinner if you'd like. I know you haven't eaten and you've worked late tonight. And I said, okay, fine. So that kind of became the routine. And then about hmm, a year later, we, we were married. Wow. And mm-hmm. how old was he? When we married, I was 17 and a half, and he was um, 27. Just right. <laughs> just right. Okay. Never never could get interested in younger men. Because just didn't work. You were too mature for them, probably. You know, I, I think so. Um, and in some ways, I was 17. But in other ways, my mother and I had been equally yoked and supporting the family. I had been the one to deal with my father and make some really tough calls and decisions and you know, protect my sisters. And so in many, many, many ways, I, I was much older. I worked the summer prior to meeting Blaine for Title Insurance and Trust Company in Los Angeles as someone 22. Hmm. So I could pass. I mm-hmm. just kind of matured early. Okay. But first time I brought him home after he left, I was all excited. And I said, Mom, what did you think of Blaine? <laughs> she said, to be honest, that's the ugliest man I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, my goodness. She, she was very forward, but just me. <laughs> She'd never say that to him because she adored him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I made some, you know, comment, well, you know, beauty's only skin deep. And she just came back so fast with you hold him and I'll skin him. 
<laughs> oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Ouch. <laughs> no, are you kidding? I told Blaine, and he'd just been over laughing. I mean, they absolutely adored each other. And what was it about Blaine that drew you to him? Oh, my gosh. Well, first was his brilliance. Oh, the guy has an IQ like 200. I mean, he's just absolutely brilliant. And the other thing was the kindness. One of the kindest men I have ever known, including here I am, I'll be 80 next year, and he still stands out in my mind as the kindest man I've ever known. Well, that is saying something. Yeah, and generous and uh, funny. And oh, and he was 6'7". I was in love. Wow. Like <laughs> So easy to find him if I had to pick him up at an airport or anywhere. Ah, oh, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> he stood above everyone else. He stood above everyone else. So he was six, seven, and you were five? Five, four and a half. Five, four and a half. Wow. He'd hold his arm out. I could walk under it. Oh, nice. <laughs> and when I was pregnant, we were leaving a restaurant with friends once, and I was about six months pregnant with our first son, and I said, oh, I'm tired. I'll be glad when we get the car. And he said, oh, come on, and he picked me up like you would a kid. Wow. And I was riding on his arm, and <laughs> we went to the car. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your wedding like? Well... He got a call, and he was establishing other factories and retail outlets for a mattress company, and he had to go leave for Toledo, Ohio. He wasn't going to leave me behind. I knew that, and he knew that. And so we talked to my mom and said, look, you know, I'm not 18 yet, but could we get married? And she gave us her consent, and so we drove to Las Vegas mm -hmm. and got married in Las No, we didn't have Elvis, but... <laughs> <laughs> We had a nice, dignified little wedding. <laughs> in one of the wedding chapels? Yeah. And then we left like two, three days later for Toledo, Ohio. I drove the car. He drove the truck. <laughs> we were doing great until we got into St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, my. We hit it at traffic hour, and there was this huge roundabout and tons of construction going. So roads were closed and opened, and, and if you didn't live there, it was a crazy place. Well, I lost sight of him, who he said, follow me at this point, and I got frustrated, and so I parked. I just stopped in the middle of the street. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, and traffic was cars trying to get in and out and go around, and the horns were blaring, and everything was a big traffic jam, and the police came over, and I rolled down my window, and he started yelling at me, so I rolled my window back up. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to deal with it. <laughs> Absolutely. And so Blaine, now horns are honking at him because he somehow somewhere parked the truck and he's right <laughs> dodging cars and he comes over to me and the policeman's yelling at him to get out of there. And he finally explains to the policeman, look, that's my wife. If you'll let me talk to her, I think I can resolve this. And so the policeman didn't even get his ticket. He was so happy to see us gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cute. So what were those first few years like? Well, there was just Blaine and I. And I had been accustomed to cooking for so many people, he would just laugh. He'd say, honey, we're not feeding the neighborhood. You know, there's only two of us. And it took me a while to adjust. And I would go to work with him and help out in the office and stuff like that. And he would be in the office or the factory or floating around as the buyer or doing whatever needed to be done. And I usually was in the office. Did you work well together? Oh, yeah. And kids? Well, while we were back there, I got PG right away. I later learned that all he had to do was walk in the bedroom. <laughs> but at that time, it was kind of a big surprise. And um, it was going to be winter in Detroit. And he didn't want me to really be there during the winter. 
And so he found someone really good for that retail store, and we moved back to California. It's just where the first child was born. And did you have family there? Yes. My mother and my sisters were there, and we had a lot of friends, and I had aunts and uncles and cousins. And And you were pretty young when your first child was born. I was 18. Wow. Was it a little bit scary being that young? Not at all. Um, I had been babysitting for years. Hmm. And remember, my sister was my doll. <laughs> so, yeah. so no, it, it wasn't scary at all. And we had a friend living with us uh, who had, my husband and him had been friends for 20 years, I guess, or something, who had a bunch of kids. He was just coming through. So hmm. if we had any questions, we had Elton there. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you had your first child. And what was his name? Brian. What was Brian like? Well, he was a little sickly at first, kind of colicky, but then he got out of that. He was thin, and um, pretty soon he gained weight, though, and looked pretty good. So you're an 18-year-old new mother, and you really have no reason to believe that he's seriously ill. Yeah, and so at any rate, then he started getting ill, and pretty soon he looked just like a child you would see in a concentration camp. You could count every rib. His arms and little legs were so tiny. He was about one and a half when we started to suspect something was wrong. And in fact, we knew it. And he had this little pot tummy. And we took him to specialist after specialist. And I heard everything from, he's asthmatic. Don't worry about it. He'll outgrow it. Um, you're an overwrought mom. Nothing wrong with this child except you. <laughs> All kinds of answers. I mean, the kid had pneumonia. He obviously could not digest and assimilate food. Uh, and there was all kinds of signs of that. And he was so thin, except for this little pot tummy, and he had the club fingernails, and he had all the symptoms of a child with cystic fibrosis. And this would have been about what year? It was about 1958-59. And the doctors didn't immediately recognize what it was? No, they didn't. And and it's, it's a great masquerader, too. It can look like so many things. And what I learned later was there's actually different types and different levels. And so the kids had the worst. They had the respiratory and the digestive problems. And then you ended up having more children fairly close together. Oh, my goodness. Brian, 58. Brad, 59. Brandon, 60. Bethany, 61. And then there was a little break of two or three years. But yeah, the first four were just boom, 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 boom. Was it overwhelming for you at all? Or you were just used to taking care of kids? Yeah, I, I, I was used to it. And remember, they come one at a time. And so, you know, you get used to it and they kind of find their own niche and work in. And it's not someone just dumped four on you at once. You're going, oh, my gosh, especially four under three. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Bethany was born two days before Brandon was a year old. Mm. Boy, that one was a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. And were the rest of the kids healthy when they were born? Well, Brian, the first one, was not. Bradley, the second child, was. Brandon was not. Bethany was not. And Bethany was the first to die mm. in 1961, the same year she was born. She only lived about a month. Oh. And when we allowed the autopsy on her is when they found out what the children had. Oh. And then they tested all the kids, and we realized that out of the three remaining, oh, only Bradley was healthy. Oh, my goodness. That would be terrifying. I hate to end this right here without knowing what happens, but we're at the end of our time for episode one. So please return with us for episode two, and we're going to find out what happens with Betty and her kids. Thanks. By the way, we would love to have you as our guest on You Talk Podcast. If you would like to tell your story in a full-length episode, 
please email us at utalkpodcast at gmail.com. We also welcome your thoughts about this episode and any experiences you might like to share with our listeners. Just Skype an audio message to our username, utalkpodcast at gmail.com. Please use a good USB mic if possible. Thanks. Can't wait to hear from you.